The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to The Waves for Thursday, October 11th, the Star Report edition. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of the Slate podcast, Outward. And joining me for today's episode from all the way out in Berkeley is Slate staff writer, Lily Loofborough. Hi, Lily. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, yeah, we're so happy to have you. Lily is here by popular demand. A lot of our listeners have been writing and saying they love your work. So we're so happy to have you on. And calling in from Oklahoma City is someone else that we've been wanting to get on the waves for quite some time. Georgetown history professor Marsha Chatlin. Welcome to the show, Marsha. Thank you. I'm super excited. Awesome. We have a couple of really juicy topics to get into this week. We're going to start with a little bit of a return to Brett Kavanaugh, avid beer drinker, alleged sexual assailant, and our newest Supreme Court justice uh, on the anniversary of the Me Too movement. What does his confirmation say about the movement? What does it mean for the movement's future? We'll talk about that. Then we'll review A Star is Born, a new film starring Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper as a rising pop star and a declining rock star who fall in love. And finally, we'll talk about a new California law requiring corporations to place women on their boards of directors. Then for our Slate Plus segment, we're going to decide whether it's sexist that Wikipedia did not have an entry for Nobel Prize-winning physicist Donna Strickland. If you're not a Slate Plus member yet, and you should be, you can start your free two-week trial by visiting slate.com slash thewavesplus. All right, let's get into it. Last Friday was the one-year anniversary of the start of the contemporary Me Too movement, as marked by the publication of the New York Times investigation into Harvey Weinstein, And it was a sort of poetic and dramatic and tragic conclusion to that first year, uh, what with Senator Susan Collins announcing her yes vote on Brett Kavanaugh on Friday, essentially clinching his confirmation to the Supreme Court after weeks of protests and discussions of sexual assault and his alleged misconduct. Um, And in some ways, to me, the Kavanaugh moment kind of felt like an extension of the Me Too movement. A lot of people use the language interchangeably. And I think there's an argument to be made that Christine Blasey Ford and Deborah Ramirez might not have gone public with their allegations against him, or journalists might not have spent so much time amplifying them if the Me Too movement hadn't made space for sexual harassment and assault so much over the past year. But in other ways, it felt totally different from the energy that gave rise to the Me Too movement. I've heard from multiple women that Me Too felt like a moment of empowerment and solidarity and shining new light on this hurt that had been uh, relegated to the shadows, but that the Kavanaugh moment felt re-traumatizing and demoralizing. And I'm curious what you two have noticed or felt about this stage of the Me Too movement. Um, I think that what it is is consistent with the way that change happens, right? Like this is what movements have to endure in order to be movements that are legible and can grow. And so I found the whole Brett Kavanaugh thing so disgusting and disheartening, but I think that the lesson to be learned from that moment is that what are the ways that we can think about talking about a larger culture that 
Kavanaugh represented in ways that are really meaningful in order to help the growth of a movement around sexual assault and sexual violence. And so I think that like what just happened is what happens when, you know, you have the March on Washington and then you have a bombing of a church where little girls are killed. It's what happens when you have passage of the Civil Rights Act and then people burning down their businesses or closing their businesses so they don't have to accommodate people on an equal basis. And so this is why I think it's so important for any movement that really wants to kind of expand and play the long game to use a history-based analysis of its own like wins and losses so that they know... Spoken like a true history professor. (laughs) I always have to to plug my industry, right? But (laughs) But I think that that's how we endure, right? Like we understand that this is part of the pattern And I mean, we're living in the backlash moment um, to recent events. And so I think that what the leadership of Me Too aligned um, organizations and people like they have to understand that this is part of it and that they have all of the tools to survive it. Yeah. Have you seen encouraging momentum among these organizations that have been I mean, I know the protests of Kavanaugh have made a lot of activists in my life um, have sort of astounded them that seeing hundreds of women swamp the Hart Senate building. That's not something you see every day. Is that something that we should take as encouraging or are all those people going to, you know, stay home now that Kavanaugh has been confirmed and who knows what's going to happen in the midterms? Um, I think all of these people have what it takes to play the long game if and only if the leadership of the movements that they've been drawn to know how to harness that energy and know that, like, in these moments, the strategy then is where is the corner of the change um, that you want to see? Like, how are you going to cultivate it? So we're going to have more women running for office, but we're also going to have, I think, um, more thoughtful discussions at schools about like the shenanigans that, you know, Kavanaugh's high school days um, encouraged. I think a lot of that still exists, especially at elite schools. I think there's going to be different types of questions that parents and teachers are going to ask. Um, on October 6th, I got this like email right after the like the confirmation from Kimberly Cranshaw's African-American Policy Forum. And the subject line was keep the fire for justice burning. And I just burst into tears, you know, (laughs) but this is the type of thing that we need. Like we need people to remind us of like where we've been, that the Supreme Court in the past has been garbage and we still are able to win. And I think that we have to, for people who are really committed to change, we have to count our wins um, in the smallest ways possible to remind ourselves that we can win. Hmm. Lily, I know you've written a lot about the what Marsha termed the shenanigans of uh, Kavanaugh's social groups. Um, I'm curious what you think about the the movement that we've seen against him and how that might turn into systemic change. Yeah, I think um, I think that I totally agree with Marsha that this is uh, to be expected. Um, the backlash is something I've been thinking about almost since I think this movement began because it seemed uh, inevitable. Just we all understand now how Internet news cycles work and how, you know, people respond when coverage of a certain issue reaches a critical threshold. And it was always the case that uh, people were going to support Me Too for as long as it identified a few bad apples like Harvey Weinstein, who were absolute monsters in the popular imagination and in no way spoke to any larger trends that would cause ordinary people like you and me to reflect. Um, 
And I think that once it was foreseeable that once people started to suspect that this was going to be more a trend than a blip, the instinct was going to be to normalize. You know, the status quo is very powerful and and it's 100% understandable that people want to argue now that this is just how men are and how sex is, you know. Um, And it's not. And I think that one of the more encouraging signs to me about this moment has been um, the extent to which I think this conversation has succeeded at defamiliarizing for people who never really thought about this stuff a culture that really normalizes the um, abuse or harassment of women. Um, I One of the more pleasant surprises to me in all this has been how many emails I have gotten from men. <laughs> um, really nice, introspective, soul-searching emails where men are writing me to say, you know, I never thought about this this way, and this is really causing me to rethink my own behavior and the way that I formed friendships over, you know, mocking women or whatever. Um, And that to me is encouraging. I think it's very hard to get people to look at their own culture differently or or through a different lens. And uh, watching the confirmation hearings, the first wave of confirmation hearings, um, one thing that really struck me was the the yelling women (laughs) who were so disruptive um, and the the institutional contempt for them was extraordinary, but the cultural tolerance for them increased was my distant sense. Um, we have become, I think, newly receptive to these cries and screams rather than dismissing them as simple hysteria or overreaction. I think people are realizing that, no, these are actually real problems, and that is very hard to make visible. You know, I, I have been wanting to write about a certain kind of, I mean, I called it to- toxic homosociality in a sort of homage to Eve Sedgwick, but like, you know, this 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 form of male friendship that kind of exists through the abuse of women. <laughs> and that was an impossible essay to write for a while because you don't want to say that male friendship is bad. I mean, my God, we need male friendship, you know, desperately. <laughs> we need men to have like wonderful, healthy relationships with each other. Um So it was a really hard essay to frame. And one of the like tiny silver linings of all this for me has been that Kavanaugh himself really made visible to a lot of people how toxic a certain model of male friendship as it exists in a patriarchal culture really is. You know, a lot of people get it and grok it uh, in a way that I don't know that they would have a year ago. So I'm beyond distressed and and horrified. by what has happened, but I agree and I'm encouraged by Marsha's assurance that this is right. I mean, this is how these things work. It is stepwise, it is incremental, it is slow, and it will always have these giant backlashes. Yeah, the the word defamiliarize is a really good one to use. And I, I really like that framing, Lily, um, because one thing that I worried about and that really frustrated me and the sort of beginning stages of this contemporary hashtag me too movement um, was that I felt like there was a missed opportunity where instead of talking about what sorts of changes can we make, what sorts of uh, it, systemic behaviors um, or cycles of behavior 
are wrong and what can Me Too help us identify? The conversation instead was about like, well, is this transgression severe enough to be included in the Me Too movement? And is the Me Too movement focused enough? Is it too angry? And when will these men come back? They must be able to come back. And then now with Kavanaugh, it's, you know, you see another sort of um, wave of backlash from people who are like, well, yes, you know, believe survivors. However, uh, isn't believing survivors dangerous because don't the accused have rights and and shouldn't we be concerned with due process? And then I was sort of infuriated anew reading Masha Gessen's retrospective on Me Too, um, which published on the New Yorker's website this week, where she's talking about, well, Me Too should be the launching point for maybe some sort of Truth and Reconciliation Commission or this sweeping structural change to the mechanisms that allow abuses of power to flourish. Meanwhile, during the first few months of Me Too, she was the one writing, this whole thing is a sex panic. We should have a very narrow focus on men who've demonstrably raped people and not on these people engaging in merely exploitative behaviors. Um, And I felt like, how, how can we take this moment and the energy from this moment and movement to actually talk about the incredibly deeply ingrained behaviors that aren't necessarily rape, but perhaps lead to an environment where rape happens or is covered up or diminished. Right. Or where women are just simply devalued and nobody realizes it. Yeah. (laughs) Right. I mean, because that's that's the that's the ambient problem that contributes to so many others. I just, all of this makes me so sick. Um, You know, as a college educator, as someone who actually attended a school like Brett Kavanaugh's, like a private elite Catholic Jesuit school, um, I think the thing that was so difficult um, in talking to my students about this is that I, I know for a fact there wasn't clarity about what was, um, what he was alleged to have done if it was actually bad. Like, we're not even there yet mm-hmm. where we could get 100 people in a room to say, yeah, like, that's really messed up. Like, you don't restrain someone against their will and give them the impression that you may sexually assault them and think it's hilarious. Like, all of that is bad. We're not even there yet. And so this call for truth and reconciliation and structural reform and restorative justice, like that is a wonderful vision. But one of the things that I think I found particularly appalling about the past few weeks is that there is such uncertainty about healthy, respectful boundaries. And even just like people talking to each other at the break room at work, let alone around sex, that I think the sickness of the culture kind of exposed itself in the ways that people were asking about this particular moment. Um, one of the men in my class, we were talking about this, and he he made this point. He said, you know, I'm really upset about this because, you know, a lot of this guys will be guys analysis. He says, you know, it's really offensive to me. I'm not a guy like that. And, you know, the other guys in this room aren't like that. And I had to stop and, and I say, well, actually, you don't know that. Yeah. You know, in a class of 100 students, I know at least 25 of them, probably more, have experienced some type of sexual boundary violation. But the reality is, is that the people who have harmed those students are actually in the classroom with them. And so when we think about communities like the ones that you know I'm immersed in, we don't even have a framework to understand how both of those people can exist in that place in a way that's healthy. And so I love these ideas that we are woefully unequipped to even understand, let alone implement. And it's so upsetting because it seems like another form of gaslighting. It really does. Um, Hmm. You know, 
let's just, you yeah. know, everyone calm down now and let's just think about really innovative and beautiful ways of realizing justice when there isn't even clarity of like what the harm is. And so I think that the narrative of, um, you know, sex panic or we don't want to ruin someone's life with accusations, all of this, these narrative um, flourishes um, have been, I think, really powerful deflections because I think that this moment has made a lot of people realize that they've been harmed in ways that they couldn't even imagine because it's never presented as harm. Yeah, yeah. I would I guess I would add to that that um, one of the really um, revealing things about this moment has been the, that poll that said that 54 percent of Republicans believe that Brett Kavanaugh should be confirmed even if the allegations are true. Mm-hmm. Um, that is an important data point to hang on to because it illustrates exactly what Marsha is saying, which is that we are not even to a consensus where we can all agree as a culture that women ought not to be uh, restrained, held down, mocked, humiliated, and almost, you know, in fear of their lives because their breathing is being impeded. Like the fact that that is not something we can even agree on is pretty concerning. Um, But I would say that on the flip side, um, I think one of the really interesting possibilities of the boys will be boys uh, boogeyman as an argument is that, well, for one thing, I think, you know, for all that feminists are called man-haters, I think that that really reveals such contempt for men, the idea that boys are intrinsically like this, because, uh, and this is the part that's hard to talk about and that I'm never sure how, I think a lot of women um, have private knowledge of how men behave in sexual contexts that, as you guys point out, other men don't have. That is to say, a lot of straight women who have sex with men... um, have experience of men that is actually not available to their peers. And so the governing myths about how men behave, especially in sexual contexts, is important both because I think it teaches men who are not experienced what the expectations are, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, but also because it can normalize a lot of behavior that in fact is not normal. I mean, I think uh, Maura Quint had a really fascinating Twitter thread where she went through all of the encounters that she had that were ambiguous, where she was drunk and somebody asked if she wanted to go home with them. And she said, maybe. And he said, nope, maybe isn't yes. And he walked away. And she said, I was lucky I didn't meet a rapist that night. Um, And, you know, she went through all of these kind of gray situations where she was fortunate to meet a man who behaved with fundamental decency and with a real respect for her ability to consent. Um, And I started thinking about all of those, too, (laughs) you know, like how much experience I have of um, situations where I think it sounds like the culture I live in would have said that my ability to consent was compromised and I had already consented by going back to a guy's room to whatever he wanted to do to me. (laughs) But he didn't. You know, like, I've been lucky in that a lot of the men who I have happened to spend time with have totally respected my boundaries. And um, finding a way to talk about that cultural normalcy seems important too, right? Otherwise, we develop this vocabulary about masculinity that does actually perversely normalize abusive behavior. Yeah. Does that make sense? Definitely. And especially for for young boys who 
are, you know, constantly probably concerned with how they come across to their peers and to women and thinking, is this what women expect? Is this how I'm supposed to act as a man? And, uh, you know, one of the worst things about masculinity is that it creates an anxiety about its it's it's prevalence where, you know, men are constantly thinking, how masculine am I? Am I masculine enough? Um, and if masculinity is defined in such a way that uh, rewards abuse of women, uh, yeah, I, I, I agree that that is important for teaching young boys. I've also been thinking about the fact that women are not even on the same page about this. I, I constantly go back to this um, – I think it was in January of this year, uh, Daphne Merkin wrote in the New York Times about, you know, how she and her quote unquote feminist friends were not totally on board with Me Too. And a lot of them were saying like, oh, grow up to all these women saying they had been sexually harassed. That's just what the world is like and deal with it. To me, that's not some you can't really call yourself a feminist if you're saying that's what the world is like, because part of being a feminist is saying, I believe in a world where you don't have to just brush off every time you're sexually harassed and that that shouldn't be what the world is like. Uh, but even now around Brett Kavanaugh, you alluded to this, Lily, uh, you know, the most recent Quinnipiac polling shows white women evenly split on confirming Kavanaugh. Uh, 46% believed Blasey Ford over Kavanaugh. That was within the margin of error. Um, 47% of white women said Brett Kavanaugh was being honest more than those who said he wasn't. I don't even think, I think among women even, there's still uh, a not insignificant proportion portion of them who think that either Brett Kavanaugh was uh, telling the truth or that even if he was, well, you know, that's that's what being a woman is like. Uh, part of being a woman is dealing with men like him and LOL, uh, boys being boys. Oh, I just I mean, so much of this also, even the one of the things I struggle with um, our framework of Me Too as it exists today. Um, and it's in the ways that people have misidentified it as tethered to Hollywood rather than some of, you know, its origins and thinking about street harassment, um, is that what, what starts to happen is, um, speaking out against sexual violence gets so tied to like race and class and power that these weird things happen where, you know, the world in which Brett Kavanaugh lives, you know, women like, um, you know, Christine Blasey Ford, like, they also are kind of navigating whether or not she is like a class or race trader by talking about her experiences in this way that I think for them may have just be perceived as like coming of age party culture of like how you date in high school. There's like, this is the part of it that's just so upsetting. And I think it was interesting, all of the um, alumna of Holton Arms, you know, really showing their solidarity. But in doing that, I think they're they're reckoning with some of the ways in which their social class also contributes to a culture um, in which I think parents and I think adults and mentors and teachers sanction this kind of culture because it doesn't matter. It doesn't have um, an implication for your life if you do this kind of stuff. And so I think there's that, there's that and then there's the Hollywood framing of Me Too. And so what, what gets lost in this is the fact that, you know, there are critical masses of women who are incarcerated who are vulnerable to sexual violence. There are kids in the foster care system in group homes who are subject to sexual violence. So I think that one of the kind of challenges in 
using the kind of Me Too framework as it appears in a lot of um, public platforms is to say, like, this is about a problem that cuts across all of these different class and race lines, but the way it's interpreted and received is so shaped by race and class. Um, I think getting that message out is so important, but I think it really forces people to contend with some really unsettling realities about their own social context. Yeah. I think, too, I mean, a a separate angle on this is that um, I think that there is a a concerning belief that women who are speaking out about this stuff, again, you know, hate men. And my God, I mean, every feminist I know loves so many men so much. And I think, you know, what Kate Mann calls empathy, right? Like this, like this tendency to to over-empathize uh, with men in our culture um, is a problem that really expresses in that statistic that you're citing, Christina. Um, I, I personally know uh, some some women who were raised by a very abusive father um, who routinely beat his wife, their mother, and um, and they love their dad, you know? I mean, like, the, the problem is, like, the problem with abuse and the problem with domestic abuse in particular is that it does unsettling things to the combination of violence and love. And um, by... You know, their father is dead now, and they speak of him as if he were a saintly, wonderful figure. Um, They love their mother, too, and she, too, has passed. But but where they ultimately fall on, you know, the spectrum is they sympathize with Kavanaugh. You know, they sympathize with Kavanaugh over Ford because that— you don't want to not love your dad. Your dad is an important person in your life, right? So, like, if you have to reconcile the fact that your father is abusive to your mother and maybe sometimes to you um, with the fact that he is your dad and an entire culture is telling you how important family structure is and how important filial love is, um, well, (laughs) you're going to love your dad. You know, we are human people and we are complicated and we will ultimately, I think, default to the loving position. And that has fallout. Yeah, I think that's a good place to leave it. Um, Listeners, I'm really looking forward to hearing what you all have to say about this, about whether Kavanaugh's confirmation will be energizing or demoralizing for the Me Too movement and what it all means. Uh, send us your thoughts at thewaves at slate.com. All right. A Star is Born. It's a film starring Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper. Cooper also directed the film. It's getting a lot of Oscars buzz. It seems like uh, probably the most anticipated movie of this season. Um, Marsha, why don't you give us a little synopsis? So A Star is Born is about the relationship between um, Bradley Cooper's character, Jackson Maine, who um, is struggling with addiction, with demons from his past and his chaotic childhood. And as he is grappling with the decline of his physical body, as well as his career, um, he discovers Lady Gaga's character, Allie, um, who is this young woman who is a singer-songwriter and a lot of what her her desire to be a musician, but um, her own hesitancy because of the ways that she has been critiqued around her looks. They find each other. They go on the road. There's a lot of singing. It's beautifully shot. 
And it talks about this kind of relationship between these two people who also have a relationship to the public and to fame. And it raises questions about integrity in creative forms. It also is about a relationship between a man and a woman. And I have to say, off of our previous conversation, in the era of like Justice Kavanaugh, watching this movie for me was very painful. <laughs> I had a hard time watching this movie in light of recent events. I think I would have come to the same critiques that I was uncomfortable with the gender dynamics, with the way that the power between these two characters played out. I think I would have been like irritated six months ago, but in like the past few weeks thinking about um, gender and powers constantly, this movie was both very beautiful and very disturbing all at the same time. Yeah, I oh. I agree with you, but I want to hear, uh, Marsha, what specifically enraged you about the movie? <laughs> I think enraged is exactly what right. So, um, you know... I'm not a big movie person. I just I need to disclose that. So maybe I'm unfair, but it it's about a relationship that unfolds in the kind of classic movie way where the guy has really bad boundaries <laughs> and this woman is saying no to some of his advances and it's it's supposed to be cute that he kind of busts through the boundaries and uses his power and status mm -hmm. to like entice her into doing things. And so there, there were these moments in which I felt like, oh, maybe the movie is self-consciously critiquing these dynamics, or maybe it's not. And I think my inability to know if that is part of what they were trying to do with this film was also part of why I was getting irritated, because I don't think that they were. I think that we were supposed to take for... Um, you know, we're supposed to just accept the premise that this older guy pursues a younger woman in this way, and he does a little bit of gatekeeping for her dreams, and that that's okay, and that our only problem with the Bradley Cooper character is that he suffers from addiction. But outside of the addiction, the dynamics of that relationship um, are kind of our standard, like, heterosexual romance stuff garbage in our culture and it just was so upsetting to watch and I think part of it is so upsetting because it's in a beautiful movie yeah I think it's shot beautifully the music is really interesting um I think Lady Gaga's performance is really outstanding uh Bradley Cooper I think is pretty convincing although it's this kind of weird thing where um when Hollywood tries to make people who are very conventionally attractive gritty it's kind of <laughs> awkward um but um, yeah, it's such a, it's just like our horrible toxic culture. It's so, um, it's so like, um, you can become inebriated by the sick romance in the movie. This is why I don't do movie reviews. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, actually, I was thinking about this in our last conversation about Kavanaugh, about the idea that somebody can, somebody has an intimate relationship with a family member who has suffered from addiction, as Lady Gaga's character does. And she recognizes from the very beginning that um, Jackson, this guy, has, you know, sort of toxic behavior. Um depends on his loved ones in ways that 
betray a lot of boundaries and and don't seem like the foundation for a healthy relationship. She knows from the very beginning, like, this is the last time I'm going to save you. Uh, You're not going to do this around me. You're going to need to stop drinking, blah, blah, blah. And yet she still gets sucked into this relationship with him. And I felt like that was a very intimate and real portrayal of of that dynamic. Um, And I agree with you, Marsha, that I kept trying to figure out whether it was uh, commentary on and criticism of the way that he sort of won't take no for an answer at the beginning in terms of going out with him and then in terms of getting on stage with him. But I think at the end, I... I think that it wasn't. I think it romanticized and idealized their relationship until the very end. And it was even, uh, you know, I'm not going to spoil the end, but it, it has all these loving flashbacks of the two of them being together. And in the end, it was just sort of like a loving depiction of women putting up with and caring for these sort of tortured and suffering and can't take care of themselves men. And meanwhile, if a woman is like that, if a woman was a Jackson, she's not a rock god. She's uh, Courtney Love, who, as Alison Yarrow discusses in her new-ish book, 90s Bitch, was torn apart in the media for doing drugs, for being a quote unquote bad mother. And meanwhile, you know, his uh, in the movie, Jackson's character sort of uh, he, he is losing his grasp on fame and he embarrasses himself, but he's never he's still generally beloved, I think, and, and put up with by a bunch of people. And I would like to see a woman in that role. And so maybe the fifth iteration of this film, which is already the fourth iteration that's ever been made, uh, can be a gender flipped version. And there will be like the young ingenue of a man taking care of this uh, woman who is uh, not only suffers from addiction, but is sort of a selfish and toxic partner. This is so interesting because I agree with you both, but I loved it. Um, <laughs> so I'll be, I'll be I, I should say defender. I actually really enjoyed it, too. And I kind of want to see it again. <laughs> well, so here here's what I would say without actually disputing any of that. I would I would note that I was also interested that he uh had an alcoholic father and was kind of destroyed by it as was his brother. <laughs> so they're both kind of contending with like the patriarchal abuse that and neglect that I guess formed them. Um which I was grateful for. Um, but I would say that what I found interesting about it, and I don't actually think it rises to the level of, sub- of subversion. I think you guys are right that it doesn't actually commit to one perspective or the other on this, is that um, I did like the number of head fakes in a certain direction that I recognized as a very stereotypical Hollywood nod that ended up not materializing. Um so, you know, when you feel like she's going in the wrong direction, it's largely because of how he sees her, mm. <laughs> right? Like, it's largely the fact that her hair is orange now and she's wearing makeup and she, you know, her face is contoured even when they're together. Um, and he's clearly unsettled by that. And I think we're meant to be visually unsettled by it, too. The orange hair is really jarring. Um, but I actually appreciated that. It's not the story about the woman losing her footing and becoming someone else because, you know, I was particularly struck by that scene with her father when he's in rehab and she's with her father urging him to eat fruit and still being the, like, you know, the careworn, you know, <laughs> daughter who's um, who's still very much the person she was at the beginning. So in that sense, I, f- I felt like it wasn't valorizing his diagnosis of her. Um, and also... You know, you, you hear him 
warn her not to lose her authenticity, but you also see her not care very much and go ahead. <laughs> and, um, and you know, when, when they do have a very ugly encounter, that also felt to me like the moment in the movie when the two famous people start to tear each other to shreds. And instead it took a step back and recovered from that. Um, it both, like, I think maintained some of the sweetness of the relationship such as it was, but also really did not valorize his diagnosis of her again as someone who only wanted approval and had ceased to be a person in her own right. Um, So those were all, I think, beats that to me felt like they should have pathologized her and instead it it kept taking a step back and insisting on her personhood under all of the star machinery. Um, And the final thing is that the manager doesn't quite become the villain of the piece the way that he could be, right? So, like, imagine if the film had ended with a close-up on him instead. (laughs) It would be so horrifying and sinister, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And instead... And instead, like, the movie goes to a lot of trouble to apportion the blame for what happens. And it's not him and it's not her. It's, I'm not, I, I don't want to talk about it too much, but you you guys know what I'm saying. I yeah. think that's such a mature and healthy way of looking at this movie that I didn't have the capacity <laughs> to do. Um, but I think, I think the thing that is unsettling, if I'm really honest, it's because it's such a realistic story that even if you take out like the layers of like fame and the music industry and all that, the kind of like codependence of relationships of coming from a chaotic household, finding a chaotic partner, making excuses, asserting yourself, sometimes not like that stuff's actually very real. And perhaps I was, you know, I think, I think the part of it that was unsettling for me was um, the things that made this movie very real. Um, I hope I think that in a lot of the kind of reviews of it, there because our culture again, per the previous conversation, has so many problems that like this would have this movie could be an incredible opportunity to look at those layers. But I don't think the movie is in service of that. And I think yeah. it, that head fake is exactly the right way to describe it. I actually interpreted those parts of the films differently from you, Lily, because I think to me the overarching thrust of the film ended up being that, yes, she was uh, stepping away from her authenticity when she began wearing sequined outfits and having dancers and and gyrating. And I thought the lyrics that they wrote for her song that was in Saturday Night Live about, like, you're coming in with that ass and you're texting me. The fact that they used the word texting in her song, I feel like, was a very obvious hint to the audience, like, this is a really shallow song and, like, nothing like her previous songs. Um, and I, I mean, I, uh, I watched this movie from a place of like meta analysis because I think it, it also says a lot about Lady Gaga as a person and what she has had to do and succeeded in doing in the music industry, which is that, um, you know, she has really made an art out of the artifice that the movie seems to disparage. Yes. She loves costumes and makeup and characters. Um, and, and in part, I think she had to do that to rise above the rest of the people in her pop industry. I think it's expected of women to a certain extent. And it's not expected of men where men can be a Jackson and just sort of have greasy hair and dirty jeans and a guitar. And that's all the image you need. And of course, that's its own kind of artifice. Um, but I also knew before I saw the film that Bradley Cooper 
had literally taken a makeup wipe and wiped Lady Gaga's face when she when they had her screen test. And he Mm -hmm. he was like, I don't want you wearing any makeup. I just want it to be you just totally natural. And meanwhile, that's kind of it's part of showmanship and art. And that seems like who she is and how she feels comfortable. And um, I don't know, I also felt like Here's Bradley Cooper with his leathery, wrinkly skin, which is considered sexy and rugged. And apparently he got a daily spray tan to make it work, which it worked. Uh, And then here's (laughs) Lady Gaga, who at age 32 has clearly already had Botox and fillers. And because when you're a woman in Hollywood, your face cannot so much as make a normal facial expression if you're going to be on a gigantic screen. Um, And so I feel like the way it glamorized this sort of, quote unquote, authenticity was, uh, you know, it was impossible for me to not see that through a gendered lens or a lens that included Lady Gaga's real life. Totally agree. I mean, I think that's, I think that's dead right. Yeah. Yeah. It made me a little uncomfortable, like watching a pop star like Lady Gaga do a movie that was so critical of the thing that allowed her the platform. Um, but the other part of it that I felt like was kind of, um, uh, close to Lady Gaga's biography that I did appreciate was um, the way that, you know, her performance in, in drag bars and the queer community's like presence mm. um, as kind of shaping her musical sensibilities and her sense of, um, you know, self-fashioning. I, I liked that treatment in the film. And I also liked the fact that there was a sense that um, you know, she had kind of created a creative family. And I know that's very much part of Lady um, Gaga's own kind of narrative about this creative family that she was able to um, rely on. And so I thought that part was kind of sweet. The other thing that I thought was kind of interesting was this idea that she she goes from her father's home to Jackson's home. I also thought was like a really interesting um, thing in the narrative. Yeah, I didn't, um, even, that, I didn't even think of that that this is a woman who obviously is very capable, um, but we never kind of see her in her own space, like literally. Um, There are very few moments in the movie where she's even like in a hotel by herself, maybe once. And I think it's interesting when um, they choose to get married, how that happens. And again, I think the thing that's infuriating about the movie is that it's actually true to life. Does she ever talk to another woman in the movie? Uh, I don't think so. I was kind of looking out for that, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even her best friend oh, is a well, guy. Oh, well, I guess, I mean, the drag queens, I guess. Like, I mean, yeah, I, I think that's right. That, like, her, the fact that she comes from this really supportive community that is explicitly about self-fashioning and makeup strikes me as interesting and important. But, I, yeah, I, I... The only thing I would say is that I am not... There are versions of this movie where I feel like the condemnation of her arc as an artist is more clear. And I I totally agree that the SNL song was meant to elicit contempt from the audience um, and that we're supposed to feel a certain level of horror at what she is asked to do in order to uh, fit the manager's expectations. Um, But somehow... The movie's music, I feel like the, the movie was ultimately less interested in pronouncing on the intrinsic value of any music than it was in, like, the intimacy that lives inside the fame machine. Um, mm. 
I don't know. I was very taken by the initial shot of Jackson, like getting up on that stage and seeing the crowd and then having to take the pills. <laughs> I sympathized intensely <laughs> with that moment. <laughs> I, I've been listening to the soundtrack. I downloaded it yesterday. And it's a it's interesting because the other the the part I found a little distracting was it was like Bradley Cooper doing an impression of a singer. <laughs> um, but I'm also impressed that he like was like, okay, I'm gonna learn how to sing for this film, right? And so, but it's it's interesting to listen to the music outside of the film and this idea that um there's something that's beautiful and magical about creativity that even like addiction and like a tumultuous relationship can't kill. And I think that trope is a very common one in movies that fe- that feature artists. But I think you're right. I think that um, I think that they don't come down on the fame machine as aggressively as it could in terms of being really heavy handed um, against either of these people of of what they need to do to survive their fame or what they do to become famous. I'm curious what y'all think about the fact that they the two main characters meet in a gay bar uh, or a drag bar and they fall in love there, sort of. And then they end up, you know, these two white people get married in a black church. And that really, both of those moments stuck out to me as like, oh, I'm so glad that this space that's not for you could further your love story. (laughs) Um, But I wasn't sure what, I wasn't able to really draw any significant meaning out of that other than maybe they wanted to make the cast more like racially and gender diverse by having drag queens and some black friends in there. Yeah. (laughs) Again, it's like this movie does these things and I don't know if it's like self, if it has any self-awareness or not. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just so confusing. The fact that they they get married in this the, the whole thing about them getting married in this black church, um, I thought was really just kind of convenient to create. Um, I think what it was supposed to do was acknowledge like, or maybe it wasn't designed to do. I thought it was acknowledging um, the kind of the inequality that's kind of like within the kind of systems of power in the music industry because the his black friends in, in Memphis were music people too. I got that impression, but they're just not as famous as them. I don't know this, but they also have a more authentic and loving life. Yes. And that's bullshit too. I I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I I feel like, yeah, I feel like the wedding uh, as, as someone who hates most proposal stories, I particularly (laughs) hated that one. And I thought I was meant to, and that may be wrong. Um, because it was a moment when she was clearly saying, I'm walking away if you keep doing this. And so he literally tied a string onto her finger. Yeah, um, trapping her. And she did not seem super enthusiastic about it and felt kind of, it felt, you know, it felt manipulative and it felt impulsive. And the fact that she later calls him her boyfriend during the fight really drove home to me how not real that was for her. Um, so I, f- I felt like that was... And again, this may or may not be intentional, but I felt like it was a stab at (laughs) creating, at faking the kind of authenticity that I guess his friend had located. And Mm. it was desperate and the behavior of someone with some problems um, that totally failed to achieve its object. And part of his fury, you know, when they have that confrontation is the fact that it didn't work. Um, But 
that may, I don't know whether that's, I don't know whether that reading is fully justified. This film also seems like a modern um, update of the like ethnic whites movies that focus on like Italian families Mm -hmm. from New York. And so her dad and his friends were like straight out of that kind of trope of very traditional Italian New Yorkers, their dynamics with their kids. And one of the things that I thought through this um, was, you know, like, would she get married without her dad there? Hmm. Because there are these strong kind of patriarchal ties. And then the other thing, and I guess, Lily, you're my new best friend because I hate proposal stories, too. (laughs) (laughs) You guys should have been on uh, two weeks ago when we talked about, (laughs) is it sexist to propose to someone in public? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And and I am married. And, like, when people ask my husband and I about our proposal story, like, we get so indignant and terrible. But I think (laughs) the kind of the desperate attempts to bring her back in, I felt like that rung really true. But again, this, you know, this character would, maybe it is realistic. I don't know. But again, I think it's the lack of self-awareness that I think the writing of this film has at certain moments. Um, you, I think the conclusion confirms that, but I do think that the steps they go through in terms of trying to talk about this relationship, it always allows her to, um, I think it, I think the movie is always about her having to change and him being accepted as an unchanging constant that we just have to work around, which I guess is what it's like to be in a relationship or a family with an addict. Everyone kind of conforms around them and their addiction. And so again, I don't know if they did that on purpose, but they really nailed it. Yeah. And actually, now that I think about it, the whole, uh, you know, him not having anyone to go to a bar with after the show, which is why he goes to the gay bar and then them getting married in the black church just sort of served to drive home that isolation that addiction can create. And, you know, they really didn't have a community around them. And maybe that's also part of why she didn't have people outside of her relationship telling her like, hey, maybe don't cancel this part of your tour because your husband is a mess. Yeah. So much to talk about with this. Uh, Listeners, we would love to hear what you think of A Star is Born, um, especially all of the various qualms that we had with it. Um, You can email us at thewaves@slate.com. In general, I would recommend the movie, I think. It was really interesting, and I loved the music. I've got to get that soundtrack. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it was the only thing that got me out of my head during this time, and I was really grateful for that. (laughs) Yeah. All right, last on the docket today, women on corporate boards. Late last month, Governor Jerry Brown of California signed into law a bill that will require publicly traded corporations to have women on their boards of directors. Lily, can you tell us a little more about the law? Yeah, so... um, So California Senate Bill 826 uh, basically requires publicly held companies to have a minimum of one woman on their boards of directors by the end of 2019 and two women on boards of five members and three on boards with six or more by the end of July 2021. And failure to do so would result in fines that would start at $100,000. Governor Jerry Brown accepts that there might be some, quote, serious legal concerns about this. And so he said, you know, I don't minimize the potential flaws that indeed may prove fatal to its ultimate implementation. That's his quote. 
Um, but he says that he's doing this because recent events in Washington, D.C., like, make it clear that people are not getting the message that this is a serious concern. Um, a quarter of publicly traded companies that are headquartered in California have no women on their boards, and that's actually better than the national uh, statistics. Um, only 20% of, like, the S&P 500 board seats have gone to women. Um, and there are reasons for this kind of thing, and it has been done in Europe. Um in, I think, 2008, uh, a lot of countries uh, in the EU, including Germany, Sweden, Iceland, Finland, anyway, at France, I think, um, had quotas and fines. And it was controversial, but appears to have uh, produced some pretty desirable results. Um, the controversy is basically that, you know, is it appropriate to force something like this? and um, And is this an appropriate way to increase diversity in an entire industry that seems very reluctant to do so. Um, the pro-business argument is that it appears to have worked, at least in Europe, um, pretty well. <laughs> uh, so, in other words, like companies that have gone from no women in their you know directorship to thirty percent have shown higher profits, and that you know correlation isn't causation, but that is suggestive. Um, the countries that have done this seem to have felt that it was actually a good thing ten years on. Um, they felt that this kind of blunt instrument was necessary in order to overcome the implicit bias that is just making it impossible for women to make significant progress. Like at this rate, it seems like it'll take forty years for women to achieve parity. Um, I, That's even um, surprising to me that that yeah. it could happen in 40 years just because I know – I mean every time I read a story about women on corporate boards, it's always like there are five times more Davids on corporate boards than women <laughs> or something like that. There's always like some statistic where like all these men have the same names and there are no women on their boards. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I don't know about you guys, but I find it extremely hard to get excited about this sort of thing mostly because yeah. I think there are – so many more pressing concerns for women in corporations than are you on the board of directors or not. Um, and I think my hot take on this is that uh, Jerry Brown, this is just sort of like a sexy and sort of cosmetic thing for him to put to to get behind um, that it's it's not really going to make a big difference in the lives of women who actually need help and are experiencing gender equality that they're not like uh, already at the tops of companies and eligible for corporate boards. Um, and on the same day that he signed this bill into law, he vetoed a bill that would have provided abortion medication in the student health centers at California public universities, uh, saying like, oh, that's not necessary. There are plenty of abortion clinics close enough to universities. Students can just go there. Meanwhile, he's signing this bill into law, positioning it as somewhat related to the Kavanaugh hearings, I think, like people in Washington, yeah. D.C. aren't getting the message. I don't really see the connection there. And he addressed it to the Senate Judiciary Committee, even like it was a definite. Yeah. Right. Which has mm -hmm. nothing to do with, you know, if it was a bill about sexual harassment or holding sexual assailants to account, possibly that would have made sense. But this is, uh, I, I think, just a way for him to seem woke and seem like a, a staunch opponent of Trump when, meanwhile, things that could have actually made meaningful differences in the lives of women who aren't making six figures uh, aren't important enough for him to sign. This is like so not helpful. <laughs> <laughs> I think these like these these types of policies that have huge gaping holes kind of legally 
I mean, talk about like you just gave an opportunity for like the 0.01% to sit on better boards and collect huge fees as a result of their participation. I just find this so not interesting, but I think it is so emblematic of um, the kind of corporate feminism that Mm. allows us to register this as a win. Um, And I can't, you know, the kind of Mika Brzezinski, know your worth, women in the world kind of circuit. I cannot, you know, I can only imagine the ways that they will celebrate this and maybe Jerry Brown will get an award, some type of, you know, like glass. Yeah, no, he's going to get some like type of glass ceiling thing. And it's like, hey, you know, what would be awesome for women, affordable housing in Northern California. Mm -hmm. So people don't have to like live in homeless shelters with their children while they're working. That would just be amazing. And I think that these kind of non-economic approaches to issues that are tied so deeply to economics and gender, um, it's funny. I wonder who was in the room with him when he came up, when they like advise that this is the direction he should go in to be on the right side of history. It's just so um, insufferable um, because it it's not helpful at all. I shouldn't say help, not helpful at all. It just doesn't get to the things that I think are so critical. And it, it rests on a, a sort of trickle-down theory of equality that is disturbing to me because there are so many women who are leading companies who are just as ethically bankrupt as the men who are. I think about Clearly. someone like the uh, head of Lockheed Martin, who's a woman, Elizabeth Holmes from Theranos. You know, it's not like, by, like oh, let's make our, our companies better and more ethical by putting women on them. First of all, that puts an undue burden on women to be the, you know, nannies and hall monitors for men. And I also wonder if, you know, maybe companies will say, well, fine, we're going to fire uh, the one man of color on our board or something and replace him with a woman because look, diversity. Or, I mean, I think kind of the funny yeah. effect of all this is that they're going to yeah. have to fire a lot of men off of corporate boards, which I don't, I don't anticipate that all of a sudden these companies are going to become better places for women to make their careers and rise through the ranks than they were before. No, and in fact, like, I mean, studies have actually borne that out, that even though, like, uh, profits have increased for these businesses in Europe that have adopted this policy, uh, it has had no measurable effect on the promotion of women in lower ranks. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I would I would say that, like, I mean, yes, uh, daycare, my God, what if that were a concern, <laughs> you know? Or, or even, like, if we're talking about how the very upper echelons can have a measurable impact. Like, I was so taken with Frances McDormand's, like, Oscar speech about inclusion writers, you know, um, in Hollywood, meaning that, like, in order to participate in a project, you would insist that, you know, the crew and the cast would have to have, you know, (laughs) some direct representation. Um, And uh, I was disappointed not to see that take off more because that seemed to me like a way to make a measurable impact um, for people who have a lot of power in their negotiations. Uh, is there anything, is there any possible good impact that this bill might have or that this law will have in, in California? I mean, I know the pieces that I've read about it are all sort of dubious that will it will even be enforceable in part because American corporations are all incorporated in Delaware because of their tax benefits. Oh, the thing that I think will be interesting about this is if this could become an interesting issue in which groups that are committed to women's 
you know, rights are, um, if they troll this in ways that can be really strategic, because what will be interesting to see is corporations spending far more than $100,000 to try to fight this in the courts. Mm. And to think about like, they would rather spend their money fighting this than to actually identify women of substance or talent. I mean, this is a binders full of women moment 2.0, <laughs> that it can become a way to to talk about like, how bankrupt and empty some of these approaches are, and maybe um, wedge in an opportunity to talk about things of, of more substance. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and take that uh, optimistic viewpoint so that I don't continue hitting my head on my desk over this. <laughs> All right, now it's time for our recommendations. I would like to recommend Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng. It came out in 2017, but I just had the opportunity to read it because Celeste Ng is going to be a guest on this podcast. Uh, We're having a live show in Miami next month, November 17th. She's going to be a guest. So I was really excited to read her book and I tore through it in like three nights. Um, It there are so many different beautiful and compelling stories in the book. Uh, it's a novel, but there are many intertwining stories uh, within it. It touches on class and race and adoption and what does it mean to be a family and a mother. Um, one major plot thread in the book has to do with a young Chinese immigrant named Bibi who gives birth to a baby girl um, and decides in a moment of poverty and depression and panic that she can't care for her, leaves her at a fire station. A rich white couple comes along, tries to adopt her, and then Bibi gets better and takes the couple to court to try to get her baby back. So the question for the judge becomes, would this child be better off in a wealthy home or a home that reflects her ethnic and cultural background, one that can help her understand what it means to be Chinese and Chinese-American? And should a birth mother be disqualified from parenthood because she gave her up in what was possibly the best decision for the baby at the time? Um, I, I read it very quickly, and I haven't been able to stop thinking about it since. I highly recommend it, and I'm so excited for Celeste to be on our podcast next month. And if you're in Miami, please come to our show. It's part of the Miami Book Festival. Oh, my God. I'm, like, in tears. Okay. (laughs) So beautiful. Um, My recommendation, um, I read this book, like, every two weeks, um, is Your Art Will Save Your Life by Beth Pickens. It came out from Feminist Press in April, and it's all about just trying to create and stay grounded in this era of ridiculousness that we're living in. And it, what's beautiful about it, it's both practical, like how to wake up and still tend to your creative projects, to your writing. Um, and it's also just very clear about how in the times that we live in, like this is not the time to abandon um, the things that really feed and nourish um, nourish us. And so, you know, this book, it's short, it's really clear, um, just in the spirit of full disclosure, I'm actually mentioned in it, but that's not why I'm recommending it. It's really about, you know, the ways that I think after the election for me and a lot of members of my community, how we just felt like, okay, this is the moment we just stay in bed and never get out. And it's a reminder of the thing that I think we were talking about at the top of the, the podcast, like that when we show up, um, that is a small victory that we have to savor and we have to share in our communities. So your art will save your life. We'll do exactly that. Wow. That sounds really good. Yeah, it does. <laughs> hmm. um, I'll send so, you guys copies. 
Ugh, I oh, would love to yay. read that. Thank okay. you. <laughs> I need that. <laughs> um, so I, I guess I have I have uh, uh, three, um, and and one is very generic, and I'll just keep it brief because it's very popular, and many of you probably already know it. But um, one of my favorite shows about masculinity is Peep Show, the UK comedy um, starring David Mitchell and Robert Webb, and um, it's been uh, an oddly nourishing text to return to um, during these times, um, in part because it doesn't operate on ambient contempt for women, mm. um, while going pretty deep into like the foibles of masculine concerns. Um, so anyway, I love it. I think it's hilarious, and I really enjoy that, and it's, it has been a little bit of a refuge. Um, I have also been, just out of curiosity, revisiting some of these um, memoirs from women who have lived in Hollywood before any of this happened. And so one is Carrie Fisher's Shockaholic, um, which is a memoir about— um, it's one of it's such an interesting formal experiment because it's literally about her receiving shock therapy and losing her memory as a result of it. So she's writing the memoir kind of in real time, knowing that parts of her memory are going to be erased in the process. Um, but among other things, it details this really striking dinner that she had with uh, with Ted Kennedy and Chris Dodd, where they were just absolute monsters to her <laughs> and it's a big extended scene and there were there's a, a nice couple present at the dinner too and it's one of the most vivid articulations of how standard this was of how she recalls it of how she behaved in the moment it actually has a moment when she starts directly addressing her own vagina at the table <laughs> um it's incredible and it's a useful little time capsule for thinking about what women had to put up with just to kind of exist in that world and how, you know, Carrie Fisher, for one, responded. Um, and the other one is Anita Liu's Kiss Hollywood Goodbye, which is a memoir, I think it was published in the 70s, maybe 1974, but she was a screenwriter who wrote just hundreds of, of movies, including Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. And um, she is so funny and so odd and... It is in large part about her relationship with her much older husband, who was kind of a failed director. It's very Star is Born-ish in a certain way. <laughs> um, he's resentful of her success, economically dependent on her, cheats on her. It's a harrowing story in a lot of ways, but her approach to it is, um, A, just fun to read, and B, I don't know, um, I'm not going to say instructive, but it's just been an interesting thing to read women who lived through all this and how they did it. Yeah. Wow, that sounds so good. All right, so we've got uh, our next month of cultural consumption laid out for us. Uh, <laughs> that's our show for today. If you like The Waves, please subscribe on your podcast app. Thank you so much to our production assistant, Alex Barish, and our producer, Danielle Hewitt. For Lily Lufbarrow and Marsha Chatlin, I'm Christina Cotterucci. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>